Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 44, please. The title of the message this morning is, When the Church Appears Defeated. When the Church Appears Defeated. It may sound like a bit of a strange title for a sermon, especially because we're taking it from an Old Testament psalm. But I think it is very applicable, and I think it is timely as well. I don't know if you've noticed, but the church or Christianity as a whole doesn't seem to be doing terribly well in these days, at least not in North America. And this isn't just to bemoan our state, but when you look at what is taking place in the world, the determined rejection of Christian values, the undermining of the family, the praise and flaunting of sin, the hatred toward things of God, it doesn't look good for the church. If I didn't know the end of the story, I'd say the church was losing or had already lost the battle and that secularism or atheism had won. So what do we do when that is happening? What is our response when the church is, currently at least, on the losing side? That takes us to Psalm 44. That is what Psalm 44 is all about, responding to defeat. Now, it isn't specifically speaking about the church, as this is many years before the church existed, but it lays out the same principles, or some of the same principles, For the church, and these are, I believe, clearly applicable. So I want to interpose the church onto Psalm 44. That's a dangerous thing to do, but we're going to try it this morning anyways, if you'll permit me to do so. And just so we have a bit of context before we examine this psalm, especially since we are talking about an Old Testament passage, and we're looking at it through the lens of the church today, this psalm is not about spiritual defeat or political defeat. It is about the physical defeat of the nation of Israel. So we have to be careful not to take the physical aspect of this psalm and apply it physically today. But there are spiritual principles we can take. We shouldn't be asking God to cause us to trample those who rise against us as it does here in this psalm. But there is a principle that can be derived even from that very real physical situation and applied to the church today. We aren't certain when this psalm was written or what period of defeat is being spoken of here. But we can see that it was a unique situation because the writer claims that the defeat that they were facing was not due to sin. And for Israel, that is an anomaly. Almost exclusively, when the nation of Israel was invaded or defeated in battle, it was because of their own sin. That doesn't seem to be the case here. So some believe that this psalm was written shortly after the reign of King Josiah, who was a righteous king, who did all within his power to restore the people to God. That, if we are applying the psalm to today, may make for some interesting discussion as to whether the people are righteous, particularly the church is righteous. I'm not certain we could say that the church is innocent in the current defeat that it seems to be facing. No doubt there is much we could or should be doing to further the kingdom of God. However, the actual church today, that is all those who are born again by grace through faith, is innocent in the sense that the church itself is actually made up of genuine believers who have been made righteous in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so those who have been made righteous are not held with the guilt of what we would say would result in the defeat of the church. So the apparent defeat or short-term defeat that the church is facing today is not because the church hasn't been doing its job, perhaps, but because 
The closer we come to the Lord's return, the darker the days will be. The more it will appear as if the church is defeated. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that, about the church's presumed guilt or innocence. I'd simply want to look at our response to this apparent defeat that is taking place, to look at the response to the defeat that took place in Psalm 44 and see what the parallels are. So we're going to read Psalm 44 this morning, keeping those things in mind. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of time and eternity. Nothing is new to you in that sense. Nothing catches you off guard. Nothing startles you. You have a plan and a purpose, and you are weaving it throughout time. And so as we look into the world today and we see we see what is evidently the demise of culture, at least, and even looks at the present moment to be the demise of the church, we know that you are in control, that you are weaving your plan throughout time and history, and that it is perfect. We thank you that you know the end. And even when we question that, or even when we are uncertain about it in our current situation, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of all. And it's not just something that you know theoretically, but you know it perfectly, and you are all-powerful to accomplish it according to your desires. As we look at this passage, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to keep in mind the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the grace of God. May we have a New Testament mind frame that you work all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to your purpose, even as we examine the subject of defeat. And I pray that you would give me wisdom and the ability to communicate effectively and give us hearts and ears and lives that are willing to receive from you to be challenged by you and to grow in Jesus Christ today. For I pray this in his name. Amen. Psalm 44. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days. In days of old, you drove out the nations with your hand. But them you planted, you afflicted the people and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies, and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. But you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me, because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. 
if we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hand to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. Psalm 44 seems to be a rather discouraging psalm, at least at first glance. But it holds some very practical principles for us today. And they aren't terribly complicated principles. They're very straightforward. They're encouraging, actually, in their simplicity. The first thing you should do when experiencing defeat is, in verse 1 to 8, remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. The psalm starts off with a clear statement of remembrance. We have heard. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did. And then it goes on to recount some of those deeds. And remember for them, this was about the physical conquest of the land. This is a physical battle that they are in now and physical defeat is looming or perhaps has already come. So they recount how God has given them victory physically in the land in the past. They remember the good hand of God upon them. And so as we consider this, the current spiritual vacuum that we find ourselves in the world and the seeming loss of Christianity's status, we would be wise to recount the hand of God, of His faithfulness to the church in the past. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. I saw a meme recently about the number of people that are involved for you to be alive today. And it was one of these positive affirmation memes about how important you are. But it got me thinking about my family tree, so I went and I examined that a little bit. And I did a little bit of research on the numbers. Did you know that if you do a reverse family tree, in other words, start with you, then your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and etc. By the time you get back 10 generations, that you have 1,024 immediate relatives. That is parents of parents. So not extended relatives, that's immediate. That's in 10 generations. 1,024 people. 1,024 people involved in the creation of you. You are here because of 10 generations ago, up to 1,024 people. That's pretty impressive. Now when you think, well, 10 generations is such a long time, this is quite irrelevant. Actually, 10 generations is only 250 years before your birth. So just 250 years ago, up to 1,024 people were involved in the line that led to you. It's not that long ago. But regardless of the amount of time or that number of people, and they all lived and breathed and dreamed and struggled and faced issues that resulted in you being alive today. That's actually quite remarkable. You can keep going back, but actually at some point it implodes because you don't have enough people anymore. But anyways, I won't get into that. But what about spiritually? Now, it, it doesn't equate the same. It's not like you had two spiritual birth parents who each had two spiritual birth parents and going back. But for just under 2,000 years, not just 250, but for just under 2,000 years, the message of the gospel has been passed on and shared and preached and lived and one day brought to you and you heard and I pray believed and responded in faith. 
It would be incredible if we could trace our spiritual genealogy and see how many lives have resulted in our spiritual regeneration. If it goes back like that, and I'm certain with salvation, there's going to be, because you have great people who led thousands to the Lord, and you've got a lot of people who have never led anyone to the Lord, but that's secondary. It still would be an amazing family tree. If I could figure out my family tree of faith. Now, I can figure out my family tree of faith going back three generations. Uh, Before that, I don't know. But it's phenomenal how many people are involved. And, And what a blessing it is. And, and all that I've just done there, and even thinking about that, is I have remembered the faithfulness of God. God has been faithful to the gospel. God has been faithful to his word. I, this goes back beyond the cross as well. God was faithful to his word. But in the last 2,000-some years, or just under 2,000 years, God's been faithful to the gospel that it has by person to person to person to person, and sometimes just through the reading of the word or through the hearing of the word and not even an individual connected. But it has been transmitted. This is a glorious example of the wonders of what God has done. It is good for us to con- consider that, to, to pause and actually think about the wonder of what God has done that has resulted in your salvation. Even just thinking briefly about such things, it reminds me of that faithfulness and goodness of God. It is good for us to remember it. And then even bring it closer to home, not just some far off, abstract thought that God has been faithful for generations past, but that he's actually been faithful in your lives as well. And he's been faithful in this church. He has intervened and he has moved and he has caused and he has directed in your life. Some of you have impressive stories, miraculous encounters where God stepped into your situation in such a profound way that it is undeniable Others of you may not be able to say, God revolutionized my life at this particular moment, but you were able to see God's consistent hand in protecting you and in keeping you and in directing you. It's that same issue you have when you wrestle through my testimony. Well, my testimony is not glorious because I wasn't saved out of a life of drugs, sex, and rock and roll at the age of four. But it's glorious because God saved me and kept me from the age of four. And it's as glorious. God's keeping hand is as as great a testimony to the faithfulness as his saving hand is. And we can look back, and I pray that you can look back in your own life. And I know that you can look back in the life of this church, and you could say, this God has done. When you begin to look around and you sense defeat, whether it's in your own life or whether you just look in the world and you see the church is not gaining traction today. It seems to be losing One of the first things you need to do is stop and remember what God has done. Recount what God has done. Don't recount the great things that you have done. That's interesting as it starts here in Psalm 44. It recounts the great things that God has done, but then he goes on and says, but it was your right hand. It was your arm in the light of your countenance that accomplished these things. Recount what God has done. If you're discouraged with the apparent defeat that the church is enduring today, remember what God has done. The second thing that I would encourage you to do when experiencing defeat or when sensing defeat around you is to be realistic about what is happening. Things were not going well for the nation of Israel here. God had deserted them. 
They went out to war and they were driven back in shame. Their cities were being plundered. Their people were being slaughtered. Their people were being sold into slavery. As a matter of fact, it says that they were being so, sold so cheap that God wasn't even enriching himself by the selling of them. Be realistic about your situation. This nation had been mocked and shamed and dishonored and completely humiliated. It was defeated through and through. As you read this over, you can't help but see that. The picture that is presented there is not pretty, but it is real. It's not sugar-coated. It's not downplayed. This was simply the way that things were. And it is good for believers to have a good sense of reality, a good grasp of reality. In their situation, they weren't even given a reason for why this situation was happening, except that God had caused it. They saw the removal of the favor of God as the direct cause to their defeat. And I think that would have been all the more discouraging. But at least they straightforward recognized it, and they acknowledged it. They said it the way it was. They saw it the way it was. The reality is we do not know why God allows defeat at times. Why God allows the church to suffer major setbacks, we would say. I don't even like using the term defeat in the church because you know we are victorious, right? That we are more than conquerors, that eternally we are secure, that all is well, that God is coming back, Christ is coming back in authority and in power, and he will right every single wrong. But in the meanwhile, have you seen how bad things are in the world around you? Have a a realistic grasp of what is going on. Sometimes, as I said, God chooses to reveal what his purpose is in these times of defeat. And we know his eternal plan is perfect, and it is for our good and his glory. But we don't always see the immediate reasoning, do we, behind defeat? And I don't think we see it on the broader scale either. We know that the church is eternally triumphant. We know that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. We know that we will reign eternally with Christ. We know victory is ours, but right now I think we have the taste of defeat in our mouth. It isn't lasting, but that doesn't remove the taste right now. This is where we would be well advised to be realistic. Christianity will not be characterized as a success, at least not in the short term and not if you're looking from the eyes of the world. It wasn't intended to be nor will it always be victorious over evil around it. Eternally we will be, but it won't be today. And I, I don't think that we can see it any other way. You can't honestly say that Christianity is victorious today when abortion is as numerous as it is and sexual perversion is so applauded and our prison systems are full and thousands are dying from drug abuse and, 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 and. Right now the church is not very victorious, not in the culture. The longer I live, the more I realize just how desperately wicked and sinful mankind is, how sinful the human nature is. The world is desperately full of sin. And the church in North America is becoming more and more marginalized and one day will likely become silenced or criminalized, one or the other. It seems to me like the church is on the defensive. And we have experienced a whole series of defeats, at least in regards to the moral state of the world. But Christ is coming soon and our victory is eternal. So... So I'm not def- not discouraged. I could easily, we could easily be. But we must not be discouraged by those short-term defeats or those apparent short-term defeats. Nor am I so out of touch with reality that I think the church is looking good and sitting pretty for the next few years. I don't think it's in a great place. I would encourage you not to go to either extremes there. 
don't become so disillusioned with the state of the world that you willingly throw in the towel for the church. But also don't think that we are in a good place, at least as a society, and that we're getting better as the years pass in this mentality that we will get so good we will just naturally usher into the presence of Jesus Christ. That's not happening. We need to have proper perspective. Don't close your eyes in doom and gloom, but also don't be one of those people who perpetually claim that we are on the cusp of a great revival that will sweep this land. I pray that that happens. But when I see the moral degradation of our society, I am more inclined to think that Jesus Christ is going to come back before there's a revival. That the only hope for this world is not in believers. I have to be very careful here. Not in believers broadening the kingdom, although we should be, but it is that Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, is coming back. And I look at the days that are around us and I think that we are closer. We are very close to the return of Jesus Christ. And I think that the Bible clearly presents that as well. And I realize that for 2,000 years people have been saying that. But sin is increasing. And it's not just the amount that we are aware of it, although that is a reality as well. I think that we live in evil days, which are becoming more and more evil, and will become more and more evil until Christ intervenes. Some of that is perspective. I would encourage you, be realistic in your views. Okay? I know where I tend to go. <laughs> be realistic in what is happening in the world around you. Don't deny it. You look at this psalm, it's very, very clear. They were in defeat. This is the promised people of God who were not living in sin, and they were under in defeat. Okay? So be realistic about what is happening to the church and the world. Be realistic about what is happening in your own heart as well. These people, in the midst of this defeat that they're facing, which they're realistic about, they also do a self-examination. They look at themselves. It does a spiritual inventory here, and we need to do this. The trouble that befell the nation of Israel was not because of the rebellion against God. He says that they had forgotten God. They had heeded their covenant with God. He even goes right to the heart, the psalmist, whoever that is, sons of Korah here. He goes right to the heart of the issue in verse 18. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. That is quite the claim to make. Yes, as a nation of Israel, they had sinned in the past, and Babylon was coming to take them captivity for 70 years. There's no doubt about that. But these people are now, as they're, I think they're probably at the beginning stages of invasions of Babylon, and they're under defeat. They're experiencing oppression. They're being ruled over, at least to some degree. They're being slaughtered here and sold. And they say, God, we have not sinned against you. We have, we are innocent before you. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Are we able to make that claim? I pray that we are. And that as defeat enters our life, we're able to be realistic about ourselves as well and to look and say, you know what, this defeat came because you rebelled against God. Or at times to be able to say, you know what, God has allowed this defeat even though there's no, as far as I can see, no aspect that has brought that upon myself. And so I will trust God to reveal His purpose and His plan or not, but to be faithful through it. Be realistic about what is happening in the world and in your heart. It's interesting that they call out God basically as a witness of their own innocence in here. In verse 20 and 21, 
if we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secret of the heart. They were living right before God and were able to say, God, you know this to be true. Otherwise, you have, would have revealed that this defeat is from your hand for our punishment. But God had not brought this defeat as punishment, as habitually happened in the Old Testament. God brought this defeat upon them as a nation, though they were innocent before him. Be realistic. Remember what God has done, and be realistic about the current situation in regards to experiencing defeat. The third thing that I would encourage you to do is in verse 23 to 26, pray for God's renewing. You notice that the psalm doesn't just leave things as they are. He doesn't just say, okay, in the beginning, I remember what God has done. Oh, remember what God has done. Remember, We don't want to get caught up there either, right? We're, we're always living in the past. But it's good to, to go there, at least for a while, and say, I remember what God has done. But he doesn't leave it there. He goes on and he, he gives a situation in a nutshell. says, this is what is happening, and it isn't good. And it's not our fault. So he remembers God. He's realistic about the situation. But he doesn't leave it there. He begins to pray, or he prays at the end of the psalm, for God's renewing. He says, God, you have intervened in the past, but we're just defeated now, so... So God, intervene again, please. Do not forget us. Do not be distant from us. Rather, arise for our help and redeem us. That means deliver us. He wants to see God at work in his, in their very physical salvation. It's interesting that when he says it, he doesn't just say it for my salvation. He doesn't just say, God, deliver me for my sake. He says, God, redeem us for your mercy's sake. That is, God, you are a God of mercy, so manifest your mercy. Make your mercy known and make us a continued witness of your mercy. Redeem us, deliver us for your mercy's sake. If that were put in modern vernacular, it would could sound like this. Lord, save us. And not just for the sake of our being saved, but so that much will be made of you, God so that you will be glorified. After all, the glorification of God is the eternal purpose of all things, even your salvation. So he says, save us, deliver us, not for our sake, but for your mercy's sake, for your glory's sake, for your sake. And God is still the God who delivers. Spiritually, we talked about emotionally, psychologically, and even physically at times. Though his greatest deliverance is going to be when he delivers us all eternally. God still delivers. He is still the God who saves. Even though we may feel that the church is suffering defeat after defeat in the world around us, God still intervenes in accomplishing the greatest thing of their salvation of souls for his glory, the deliverance of people. No matter how dark the days may be, never stop asking God to intervene. Never stop pleading with him to move in this world. In fact, the darker the days, the greater our prayers for God's intervention should be. So cry out to God and seek God. Don't just remember what He's done. Don't just have a true view of what's happening in the world. But ask Him today. Pray that He would work in might and power. And I was tempted to leave the psalm there because that's where it ends. That's a really simple nutshell of a psalm, right? Remember what God has done? Have a realistic view of what's happening? And pray that God would bring revival, that He would cause an awakening. 
But there's something that jumped out to me as I read through this. And that's in verse 22. Because if we just leave it there, it still leaves us in the Old Testament in a sense. Dealing with the physical saving of the nation of Israel from very real enemies. But if we return to verse 22, this brings us from the Old Testament Old Testament to the New Testament in a very dramatic way. It says there in verse 22, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That was real then. He's saying this is happening. And God, we don't know why because we're innocent. But he's saying this is happening. And he says God intervened. But that verse, even though it was the condition of the Jews during that period of time that the psalm was written, it was a literal reality. But turn over to Romans chapter 8. Maybe you already had your finger there because you saw that verse and it jumped out at you. Romans chapter 8, verse 35. And this is to the New Testament church, just so you're reminded of that. It's to you, a believer today. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of a sudden, God's intervention and God's permitting even of death, of slavery, of so many of these abuses in the nation of Israel in an Old Testament period comes home in a New Testament period. For the sake of Jesus Christ, the believer is to anticipate hatred, scorning and mocking, and even to be killed. Though innocent in the eyes of God, if you have been made righteous in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, He allows His child to suffer temporary defeat at the hands of those who hate God. Yet it should not dismay us, for even though our very life's breath may be taken, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And even though we suffer the apparent defeat of death itself, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the Old Testament principle for dealing with defeat applies to the New Testament church today. It applies to you and I, no matter how many times you feel the church is being beaten down in our current culture. Remember what God has done. Be realistic about what is happening. Pray for God's renewing and then never lose heart. Because in Jesus Christ, though they may slay you, you are victorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God of time and eternity, that you are in control, and these apparent temporary defeats that we see, we thank you that you are taking them and you are using them to accomplish your glory and our good, and that one day we will stand before you. We will rejoice in heaven. And as Scripture says that these temporary sufferings are creating for us an eternal weight of glory, we see that the temporary defeats involved in that temporary suffering are good. 
Not because they feel good. Not because we see them as good in this world of evil, but because we know that they are doing something. They are doing something which is eternally good. We thank you that only the mind of God could conceive this, and yet you are all-knowing. And only the strength of God could carry it out, and yet you are all-powerful. And so we submit to you, and we trust in you. And we ask that you would enable us today to live and to rejoice, even as evil may increase. May we increase in righteousness and in the joy of our salvation, and may we represent that, may we present that to the world around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.